0: What's up everyone and welcome to the Long Game podcast hosted by Thomas Koppelman and Trey DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short bite-sized episodes.
1: Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan.
0: All right, what's up? And welcome back, everyone to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. And those viewing, uh, welcome to the Crossroads. Uh, Today, we are joined by one of our favorite financial planners out there, Samuel Dean. Um, Sam, let's just kind of start out with a quick little intro of who you are, what you do, the firm that you own and all that stuff.
2: Yeah, sounds good, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I I look up to you guys and and all the great content you, you both are putting out there, man. It, it definitely takes a lot of work, and I want to give you your flowers because you've both been pretty consistent with it, and that's a really, really tough thing thing to do, Thanks, especially man. when you're wearing multiple hats. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm Samuel Dean. Um, I run an RIA based in Atlanta. Uh, I work exclusively with tech employees. I've been running my firm for four months, actually, as of la- four years, I'm sorry, actually, as of as of last week. Um, most of our clients are uh, startup uh, employees and some folks at big tech companies like Facebook, Google, etc. cetera. Um, I specialize in equity compensation and tax planning, as that is generally the biggest pain point in, in most of my clients' lives and really just helping them navigate that space and, and doing like real financial planning to achieve, you know, their, their desired lifestyle.
0: Yeah. That's awesome, man. I think it's interesting. Cause like, I mean, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, financial planners didn't really work with this age range of like mm. late twenties, thirties, 40 year olds. I also don't think equity comp was really that common back then. I mean, if we look around now what 401k has been up for 40 years, maybe a little bit less, like everything used to be pensions. But, I mean, thank goodness we've created models that allow us to work with people in this age range because I don't know how you would, like, even for us, like, I've been working with people with equity comp for two years, and there's still nuances and things where, like, we're still learning. I don't understand how anybody with equity comp is like, hey, I'm going to handle this on my own and get it figured out.
2: Yeah, uh, it's definitely, there's definitely a lot of nuances when talking about equity comp. You know, I I tell people all the time, like when I meet with prospects and they ask about, hey, like, I'm not necessarily sure if I'm ready to be working with a financial advisor and so on and so forth. And one of the first things I say to them is, you know, just you should be working with a financial advisor before you need to be working with a financial advisor. Um, You know, when my wife and I first got married, one of the first things we did was go to marriage counseling, not because like the church required or anything like that. Like we chose to do that on our own um, just to kind of uncover things that we didn't necessarily know was sort of like, we sort of buried, you know, in under several layers and so forth. And so similar to how we chose to do that to kind of uncover things that we may not know is like, is, is there, you know, you want to kind of take the same approach to your finances, particularly if you have like equity compensation. And so um I, I would say generally, if you have equity comp, you should be working with someone. I have encountered, you know, a, a few scenarios where, you know, let's say someone just has like a small number of RSUs and there isn't much they could do or they're young and, and those sorts of things. I think that they can handle it with some DIY planning, providing, you know, they are taking the necessary steps to educate themselves and so forth. But for the most part, I do agree that if you have equity compensation, you definitely don't want to be going at this alone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in the hierarchy of like what's tough, like hard planning, I mean, RSUs are the easiest. ESPP is right around there, maybe a little bit more complex. Then you get to options and that's where it's like, okay, probably Mm -hmm. options planning is where you want to make sure that you get it right. And I think on the advisor side too, it's nice because it's a little different than like investments. So you can't just be like, hey, well, let's compare what I did versus what you would do because we don't know what you would do versus like, here's actually the the alpha, the impact that this tax planning is doing. It, I think it's nice on our side to be able to just show like, hey, here's how much that we're, like you'll be able to save on taxes or here's even like, if you wouldn't have known this, you would have had a $5,000 tax bill at the end of the year that you weren't even able to plan for. And we can help you be ahead of all those things.
2: Yeah, and all honesty, I think, I actually think ESPPs are a little bit more challenging to work with than options. I love working mm. with stock options. I love the the complexities and the nuances with that 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 you know just sort of are inherent with dealing with stock options. Primarily because I think there are more tax planning opportunities with stock options, and whether you have ISOs and NSOs, and then there's the 100K rule, and then you know just all those different nuances. I really enjoy them and they are difficult to navigate. But, you know, that's why I got into this space. Like I didn't necessarily like traditional financial planning, max out your 401k, max out your IRA, reduce your spending. Like I felt <laughs> like that stuff was kind of boring and um, finding something that challenges me every day was important. And, and equity comp does that. Like, although I've been working with clients um, with with tech employees for the past four years, I'm still learning something new every single day. Um, And so that is a really fulfilling part of, 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 of my role.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned doing like real financial planning. And one thing I love about your business and like how you work with your clients is being able to help with salary negotiations because you are so focused in that, like, tech niche and it's a competitive industry. And there's, I'm assuming like a lot of ways that people can be compensated with that. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about like how you help clients with that and like the value provided there.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you brought that up because I just recently got a client, um, a client reached out to me specifically because they were looking for help with, with, with negotiations with two different offers that they had. One was at a startup and the other was at Uber. And to be able to kind of, number one, you know, negotiate with both employers to kind of figure out, you know, where they're willing to bend, I think is a pretty unique opportunity. But then to be able to weigh your weigh your options, right? Like, what does one thousand stock options from Uber look like compared to twenty five thousand stock options from a different start, like a pre IPO startup? And to be able to kind of quantify that and, you know, show the client will hear the risks and rewards, the pros and the cons of each. And like I mentioned before, just giving them things to negotiate, like more things to negotiate for, right? Like if you're at a startup, um, you know, having acceleration rights may be something that is important if you're at a, you know, fairly high, uh, a fairly high position. And acceleration rights just pretty much means that if, let's say like there are single trigger and double trigger acceleration, right? And so single trigger would mean if, you know, one thing happens Let's say, if I get terminated, then all of my unvested shares would automatically vest and double trigger would mean, well, if I get, if the company gets acquired and I get terminated, then all of my unvested shares would automatically vest. And I think that like, that's something that, you know, your everyday person probably wouldn't know to negotiate for if they're at like a, if they're working at like a series A or, or early stage company. And so being able to provide that type of value has, has shown to be pretty beneficial. Um, I've thought about creating like an entire separate service offering just around negotiations, but I feel like I'm not an expert necessarily in that space. Like I'm not a recruiter, and but I leverage, you know, people in my network who are recruiters who have seen packages like compensation packages and so forth to be able to kind of leverage them and, and their knowledge in that space. And, you know, that has turned out to be a, a pretty good value add in addition to like tax prep and, and so forth.
0: Yeah, I think it's an easy way to, to add value that other financial planners aren't doing. Like my clients come to me and talk to me about the same thing, especially I have posted some blog posts about it. I've emailed them about it. So they like know that we talk about it because I think part of it is like, are your clients asking you for the things that you're doing? And if they're not, it's probably because we haven't coached them to ask us about things that will help. But even just aside from that, like if you help people understand the value of negotiating, I mean, think about the people you're working with. They could be making two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year. If they never even, if they're just like, "Oh, that sounds good, great offer," but you're like, "Yeah, that is a great offer," but like if you look competitively, like. You could get a better offer. Let's negotiate, and you get ten thousand dollars by convincing them it's worth it. It's like that was one simple thing, and then that compounds every single year. That helps add into your four hundred one k match. It might help you get more options and you know RSUs down the line. Like I think that is one easy way to add value for people in their and while they're building. And somebody just posted last week that it was like sixty eight percent of women have never negotiated a single one of their job offers. And then I think it's like 30 something percent for men. And so like, for me, I'm really cognizant of that. I have a bunch of, I I have a bunch of couples that are like two women. And I also have single women I work with. And I'm like, okay, like, I want to make sure I know these statistics. I want to coach you through these things because that's just not the right way to do it. And I know women, a lot of times you're like, well, I don't want to be seen as like pushy. And it's like, no, like who cares what everybody says? We're going to stand up because you deserve it. And men do that. So we both should be, you know, taking advantage of that and teaching people how to do it.
2: Yeah. I I think that's awesome. I agree. I agree.
0: Um, well, cool. All right. So today's topic though, we, we kind of got off for a second, but we're going to talk a little bit about like private investments. So this is something that we haven't necessarily had on here, but something that you've dabbled in all the way from like your own private fund to, you know, other things down the line. So just, will you kind of talk about like, why, like, why, why do people want to even add private equity uh, in you know, private investments into their investment allocation?
2: Number one, I, I will say that I don't, I think that as we all know, like there are fundamental building blocks to to building wealth, right? Like when we build a house, we don't start with the second floor and then the windows and then the kitchen yeah, and yeah. then like the first floor. Like we start from, from the basement and, and build up. And I feel like it's the same way for private investments in that you have to earn your 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 right to be able to invest in, in these sort of investments. And you also have to be an, an, an accredited investor, which is a whole separate separate topic. But I think that well, let's
0: will you explain that though to people because I don't I don't think people know whether they could invest in some of these things or not and what it takes.
2: Yeah, so for a lot of private investments, um, the SEC requires uh, you to be an an accredited investor, meaning uh, you. So basically, to qualify as an accredited investor, if you're single, you have to make two hundred thousand dollars or more for two consecutive years. If you're married, three hundred thousand dollars or more. Um, or you can meet the net worth requirement. And if your net worth is over $1 million, not including your primary residence. And if you don't meet either of those income or net worth requirements, you can always take the series 65 exam. And, and if you pass that exam, you'd be an accredited investor. I actually had a client who was going to be an accredited investor based on like his salary and, and those sorts of things um, this year, but he didn't want to wait. And so I gave him some like study materials to take the uh, series 65 exam and pass it. And one of the things he mentioned was that, you know, as an advisor, you don't necessarily expect that from an advisor, um, because it's almost like I'm giving you the tools you need to invest on, on your own. And obviously like no one is going to just take the series 65 and think they can, they can manage a, you know, a million dollar portfolio, whatever the case may be. But He kind of mentioned that like providing that additional value add was was really helpful. Um, And that's another thing that I think is important for us to do as advisors, particularly for younger clients, is providing services that traditional advisors wouldn't really touch. Right. Like we know before it it was strictly only asset management and now we have financial planning. And so I think just being able to provide more value as it pertains to that person's life um, is a a good thing if you're not stretching yourself too thin. Um, Yeah,
0: I think that's funny, though, because the Series 65, I mean, we all took it. It's like, I didn't learn anything. I learned some (laughs) rules from 1933 or something that still apply. And I I remember starting my job and was like, man, I thought I was going to learn from these exams. And I know, I feel like I know less than before I took the exam. It was awful. (laughs) terrible. But anyway, sorry to get out of track. So back to the private investments.
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, everyone has to, you know, earn their keep as it pertains to private investing. Um, I think the world is, is, is witnessing a shift in the way that investors allocate capital and, and build investment portfolios. Um, You know, historically a combination of like public stocks, bonds, and even some real estate was considered a diverse portfolio by like many investors, both individual and institutional. But I think private asset classes were relatively difficult to navigate, right? And they had higher risks and less liquidity and so forth. But I think that over the last few decades, more people started to realize the potential upside and diversification benefits that can come from startups and venture capital and private equity and so forth. And even when you look at what's happened with like Microsoft and Amazon, like a lot of investors are waking up to this new reality that that alpha is increasingly being generated in the private markets, right? When you look at Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, they're they're all prime examples. Up until the early 2000s, startup companies tended to go public comparatively like early in their growth cycles as compared to now, right? Like in 86, when Microsoft went public, they had a valuation of a little less than 800 million. In 97, when Amazon went public, they had a valuation of a little less than half a million. So to today, each company's valuation has, been, has basically created past 2 trillion, right? And so in those two cases, $2 trillion of wealth was accrued to public market investors. That's not necessarily happening right now. Comparatively, when we look at you know, like the thousand, whatever, privately held unicorns right now, which are at a billion dollars today, like those billions of dollars are being created in the private markets and the public investors don't really have access to that stuff. And so I think that that's why we're kind of seeing the shift of people being interested in, in the private markets and wanting to invest in startups and VC funds and so on and so forth. You know, companies are, are staying private longer and, and raising capital in later rounds and at higher valuations. And so, you know, it only makes sense.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting because like the best time to invest in these types of companies is the earlier you are in your life, right? I mean, the earlier, the younger you are, the more risk that you can accept if a few of these don't do well, like whatever. But then you have the other side of it as like, okay, you're, you're probably not accredited at that age for most people. So you don't have the opportunity. And even if you maybe do, do you have the rest of your finances built up in a way that allows you to take that risk? Because let's say you're in your mid to late 20s and your goal is, your main goal is in five years, I'm gonna buy a house in California that I know is gonna be a million and a half to $2 million, like Casey, okay, so yeah, you 401k, you're building savings, you're planning for the house, like where do you even have the dollar amount to do it? So a lot of times, unless you receive the equity early on in a company, it's like, okay, great. I'm gonna wait till a little bit later on in my life And then it's like, you know, maybe your 40s are a really great time to do it, but you don't want to have too much of an allocation where like, well, Hey, now we get set back because we put 20% of our portfolio into private investments that blew up to be zero. And we didn't really think through like how much that we could take, but we also understand that like the upside is crazy. I mean, that 20% of your portfolio could be two to five times the 80% of your portfolio at some point, if you find those right companies.
2: Yeah, man. I, I I definitely think that I don't know that it's so much uh, an age thing. I think time horizon plays a role, but I think because of the the type of clients that I work with, and I don't, I, I'm not saying to say that all of my clients fit this profile, but I have a few, you know, folks who I'm working with that are in their late twenties, maybe 30 years old, and they're worth, you know, Three, four, five million four, $5 million. I think someone like Crazy. that at, at that young of an age can take 1% of their portfolio, invest in, you know, risky assets like venture capital and angel investing and, and startups and so forth. And even if that investment goes to zero, like that wouldn't cause any financial detriment. And so I think that you have to kind of take a look at, at, at those things, right? Like, what is the risk like what risk is it if this person's investment goes to zero? like how would that affect their financial future? And that's probably the, the number one thing that I think about when really evaluating if if this is a risk that this, this person can take on and a lot of like, a lot of people want to invest in VC in that haven't really earned earned the right yet. And I was actually talking to an advisor friend of mine and you know, I think that's why a lot of financial advisors focus, on, I don't want to call it a cookie cutter approach, but it's the prudent approach, right? Which is like ETF investing and index investing and so forth. Like it's the it's the safe bet when you're investing. But I think we, a lot of us tend to also ignore that there's a lot of alpha to be generated in, in private investing. And I think it's just because most Americans, like most people we come in contact with, they can't afford to take on that risk to invest a dollar amount there, right? When we look at United States retirement savings like as a as a country we we're, we're behind on retirement savings and so to kind of shove private investments down someone's throat is would be would be non-fiduciary, non-fiduciary of us and so it it's important to kind of find that sweet spot find the right client find the the investment allocation amount that that makes sense on on all aspects
0: yeah i think that's a good point i i've gotten slack some some feedback on twitter that I talk about for a lot of the people that I work with, the people that have done well, they've built it up, you know, they have a good net worth and they're like really on track for all their goals. They're probably even ahead of them. I, I like reach out to those clients individually and I say like, Hey, you guys are at the point where we need to like, we don't have to start to do something different, but you built, you, you have put yourself in the position where we can start to allocate to other things. It can be crypto. You could try rental properties. It could be private investments. Like I don't really care what it is, but I want to talk to you about this because you guys have everything else on track. And this is a way where like, you know, some people can be 5%. Some people, honestly, for me can be 15 to 20% of their portfolio. We looked at all their goals and they're on track to hit everything. It's like, if this went to zero, you'd be fine. If this fast tracks your goals, this could be really, really awesome. And a lot of times the older advisors will come in and say like, oh, that's terrible. Like you should never be doing that. Everything should be ETFs. Like you shouldn't have, you know, every RSU you should sell every ESPP, when it vests, you know, you should sell like all of these things. And I sit there, I'm like, I, I think like maybe what they don't realize is for a lot of these younger clients, they don't really want to be told what to do. They like what I, I try to show them of like, Hey, like I, I had a client I was meeting with a couple of weeks ago. They have like four, over 4 million net worth and 37% of their net worth is Amazon and Microsoft. And they're still getting equity, tons more RSUs every single year at Amazon. Both husband and wife work there. And, you know, like a lot of advisors are going to sit there and say, you have to you have to get down to, you know, 5% max of each when you're at like 27. But then you look at like the last 15 years of data and it's like, okay, it beat the S&P 500. It had lower risk, their portfolio of what they had, lower standard deviation of all that time. And I'm like, man, if this was me, I would have a really hard time selling Amazon especially, I mean, you can look at it and say, Hey, it's down 34% off highs. Like, you know, maybe it'd be a good time to tax loss harvest. But I think a lot of these decisions, you have to meet people where they're at and and like, think about what would you do in in this? It's super easy to have like the, Hey, don't get in trouble. I'm a financial advisor. I don't want to, you know, say something that's too much risk. But I think with a lot of these people, you just have to give them the information. And I think private investments is that same thing um, of like, here's some, like where this could add value. And, here's why you might like it because everybody does kind of want to invest in things that they believe in other than like, here's one ETF and I believe in the U S economy. So good. I'm set. Like, I don't think a lot of people can sit with that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I, I would love to say that I naturally dived into private investing, but that would, that wouldn't be totally the truth. I think a lot of it had to do with my clients interests right and so mm. because i work with tech employees who are very familiar with startups who work at startups themselves who are familiar with vcs and fundraising and what that means as an employee and as an individual and as a as a as a, a, a teammate and all those sorts of things they are really interested in investing in, in those things like i have a client who invests in like commercial real estate he's part of a real estate syndicate where he'll send me the, the PPM of every deal. And I'll look through it and give him my synopsis and, you know, identify pros and cons. And he does similar things with like angel syndicates that he, he invests in and so forth. So I think a lot of it just came from having conversations with clients, really understanding like what they like. And that doesn't mean that everything a client likes will we'll put them in. But yeah. I, I, I would say that my client relationships have opened my eyes to the world of private investing. Um, and I, I like it. I, I'm grateful for that opportunity to, to learn something else.
0: Yeah. How do you, like, I think the thing that I struggle with is like, this is a progression that I think Trayton and I want to add eventually for our clients. But like, where I struggle with is like, how do you uh, tell if this is a good opportunity or not? Because like, let's be real, probably all of the ones that come in front of you is a good idea, but there's such a big difference between a good idea and a good business and good leadership and something that's going to be generate enough returns that it's worth the risk that you're taking above and beyond, you know, an index, the S and P 500.
2: Yeah. I mean, I stick to what I know, or at least what I think I know. Right. And so when I launched my firm four years ago, you are wearing multiple hats. You're the marketer, you're the advisor, you're the operations person, you're the compliance person. You have to kind of put all the pieces together. And I found that there came a certain point where I felt like a chief product officer really trying to identify like, well, is this solution a good fit for my firm? Will this move the needle? Is this a waste of money? And so on and so forth. And so I felt like the four years of flexing that muscle kind of gave me some decent insight into what was good technology that could move a firm like mine's forward. And so my whole premise is I'm only investing in, in wealth tech, which is what I'm familiar with. And I describe wealth tech as a subsection of fintech. When you think of fintech, there's payments, there's lending, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. And so to me, wealth tech is focusing on enhancing the wealth management and investment process for professional investors and possibly even retail investors. And so when I look at wealth tech, I'm talking about things like robo advisors, uh, research and risk management tools. Um, investment allocation solutions, billing solutions, and pretty much any technology that's designed to prove the investment process for people like you and I, because I feel like that's what I know and that's what my strong suit is, right? And as it pertains to deals, one of the cool things, cool things I've noticed is that, you know, founders want to work with me because I'm, I'm an operator in the wealth management industry and I can provide real world feedback, right? As an owner of an RIA firm, I get pitched new tech somewhat regularly um, because I know how clients interact with it. I know what clients want from it. I know what advisors and investment managers need from it. And I can provide, again, like real world feedback on how advisors will use their product, which features are useless, uh, which features are most critical, um, how other advisors would use them and so on and so forth. And so I feel as though because my insight comes from working with hundreds of families over the past few years, that gave me a unique perspective on what investors want and how they'll use this technology. And because my business relies on this technology to operate every single day, I have the perspective that an average VC just won't have as it pertains to this space. And so I felt uniquely positioned to really evaluate this technology, add valuable insight, um, test out the product, and even possibly even help market some of these solutions if if they're really moving, moving the needle for my firm. And so for me, those are the things that I kind of depend on when, when evaluating whether or not this is, this is a good opportunity to invest in.
0: Yeah.
1: What is is like the return on things like that look like, like not percentage wise, but like, if you put in, like if there was just like a good billing software out there that you really wanted to invest in, like the chances that becomes a public company is pretty low. Mm -hmm. And like, how do you actually like get your investment back on like, VC investment? Is it just like the chance of getting acquired or like, are you getting cash flow along the way? I mean, I'm sure they're all different, but what does that kind of look like?
2: Yeah. I I think from a, when looking at potential exits because of the the space that we're in, I I'm pretty confident that most exits will come from mergers and acquisitions. And when that exit event happens and that company gets bought out is then how you'll sort of make your returns and so forth. Um, I don't, I would be surprised if plenty of the companies or at least any of the companies that I intend on investing in actually go to the public markets. I would say that the larger players, maybe the custodians and, and some of those legacy firms will be the ones sort of acquiring these companies and and facilitating facilitating in, in that exit.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of the the numbers people put out are like, you you're expecting 20 to 40% returns year over year on private investments, fully aware that what, like the goal is one out of 10 hit that. And then that makes up for losing the other nine or what really, you know, what, what comes to your head with that?
2: So I'm not, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but I am familiar with with what you're referring to in that as a fund manager, if you're putting together a fund of, of 10 funds, right. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe three of three or four of those will return the investment amount, right? So if you invest $10,000, you'll get back $10,000. So there's a 1x, a, a right? There is maybe a few companies that will go to zero. And maybe there's one or two companies that could actually make enough returns for the entire fund. And so when VCs invest, they're investing on that, like they're investing, they're sort of spraying praying right and and hoping to land that one that one company that can be a billion dollar company I think I take a little bit of a different approach because I know the companies that I'm investing in or at least the potential again like I'm an operator and so I think I can identify companies that can move the needle from a wealth management perspective or RIA perspective way easier than I can like take a look at like ed tech or climate tech or something I know nothing about those industries and so I don't necessarily have that spray and pray approach. I'm I'm approaching this as, you know, they may not all be be you know unicorns and billion dollar companies, but I'm investing because I'm fairly confident that they can be self sufficient companies, and generate the returns needed for the additional risk that we're taking, right? And so, as an example, um, I am investing in a startup right now at an eight million dollar valuation. Um, if we obviously are, you know, making very broad and general assumptions here, but you know, I see it being a possibility that this company can exit at a five hundred million dollar exit. That's more than a sixty x return over the next ten years or so. And so, you know, I don't necessarily think every company is going to kind of fall in that category, but I am looking for companies that have, you know, that that exit potential from, from potential acquirers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. And that's how I'm like trying to, to view them. I think, have you ever thought about the idea of ending up working with founders in that space of like, you become really good and understand businesses and what work of like, Hey, I can be your financial planner for the founders. I can help be a strategic advisor on the business. And you know, that obviously comes at a really high fee. And I know other people to connect you to in this industry and all, have you ever thought about that route?
2: As a financial planner, I think it's, I I haven't, to be honest with you. I think for the most part, if I've thought about working with a a, a planner or I'm sorry, with a founder, it would be someone who has either exited or, or is just running a really running a profitable company and they, you know, need financial planning advice. Um, I don't, Necessarily think that that's an area that I'm that I'm gonna focus in. Um, for some reason, it. I think there's a lot of nuance there, and I don't know that I am well equipped to to deal with that.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Well, cool, man. Well, I mean, I guess wrapping up just for time's sake for you, but um, what would you like? What's your people will be thinking about as they start to evaluate some of these decisions and? Um, and maybe just like, when do you feel like is a good time to start thinking about them?
2: Um, again, I think that, that the answer to that really depends on the client, right? Like you mentioned, if you, even if I had someone that had a large net worth, like if majority of their net worth is tied up in company stock, like the client you mentioned in Amazon, I think it was. That yeah. I'd probably be a little hesitant about having them invest in that because God forbid they lose their investment in in, in the VC investment and Microsoft or, or Amazon kind of, you know, goes to a bear market. And let's say that depending on that income, like that would make me a little nervous. Um, and again, like. As I'm as I'm investing in these companies, and you know, we haven't really spoke about like the, the the structure, but I'm investing through SPVs, right? And that gives me the ability to have someone instead of writing a hundred K check, you can write a five thousand dollar check. You could write a one thousand dollar check, and if I have a large enough network, I could still write a startup a fifty K check if I get thousand dollars from fifty people. And so, I think like kind of thinking about it through how much is this person willing, willing to risk if this goes to zero is probably a good place to start, including factoring in like their net worth, their income, if they're on track for their goals and so on and so forth. But, um, there's a lot of nuance to it and it really depends on, on the individual client, as I'm sure, you know. Um, but for me, it starts with, if you lose this dollar amount, will you be okay? And if if the answer to that is no, then you shouldn't be investing in that. And I like to keep it as, as simple as that.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's really smart. I've, I actually had a client recently who I was like, I, I presented them with like, hey, I think we should look in other things. It can be some individual stocks, whatever. And they were like, you know we took some time to think about it. And to us, we just we're happy with where it's at. Like we know this investing is boring and we don't know anything else. Mm-hmm. And you know, none of the other things really necessarily interest us. And we kind of just want to stay in our lane. So I like the way that you answered that. Of like, I mean, there necess- there really isn't a set structure or set time for everybody that it makes sense for some people. It can be earlier for some people, it doesn't make sense for other people, like. Maybe it's just not something that's in their real house or really anything that they want to have to like think about or make decisions on, whether they put more in or sell, or, you know, all of the decisions that can come about with individual investments.
2: Yeah. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. Um, you know, me personally, I I view the public markets as somewhat of a and I also think too that the 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 environment over the past 10 years, 10, 15, even 20 years have pushed people towards um you know, towards investing in VC, right? Everyone's looking for a higher risk considering we are at like the lowest, uh, a low interest rate environment and everyone's chasing yield and so forth. So you have folks who are equity investors are chasing crypto and VC and, and folks who are bond investors are now, you know, chasing equity returns. And I think because of the environment we're in, I wouldn't say everyone's risk tolerance went up, but I think people think their risk tolerance has went up and that has also, I think, uh, led to some growth in, in that space. But I I think that it's a it's a viable asset class for folks who have earned the right to invest in. Um, and it's not for everyone. Like you can have someone who is a multimillionaire and then like, eh, I, I'm OK with that. I think I'll just stick to ETF investing. And I, I think that that's OK. Um, you know, we, we have these different asset classes and, and categories to invest in based on our interest and our goals and and the things that we want to achieve in life. And I I think it's, I I think that's ideally what we want, right. To be able to have these choices. Um, And so um, I love it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the whole Morgan Housel, like the goal of money is to maximize your freedom. And that's really what we're all hoping for. Um, I don't normally wrap up with kind of a question, but you're very, you're wise guy, honestly, in my opinion. (laughs) And I just like, if you, when you look back on kind of, you know, you're still young, a founder, all those things. If you look back and you, you know, what was like the biggest piece of advice or maybe even lesson that you learned that you wish you knew, you know, as you started building?
2: The biggest lesson I wish I knew. You know what? I am going to be difficult and not answer that question in the way that you want me to. That's Um, fine. Take it whatever way you want. I think if I knew certain things that I know now, I probably wouldn't be here. I think a huge uh, factor in me being where I am now and the success I've had with my firm and the ability to do these other cool things have me being completely ignorant about what it took to actually start those things and, and get it running. I said to myself in my first year, I'm going to reach a million AUM. Didn't get there till like year three. Um, told myself I'm gonna build a ten million dollar venture fund. That didn't quite work out. or not I wouldn't say it didn't quite work out, but it's I've realized that it's much 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 more difficult than I than I thought it is. but I, I think if if I went into it knowing these things, I probably wouldn't have done it. so I think just having, the utmost confidence in myself and at the same time being woefully ignorant about how much work it takes to do these things are probably the the two things that that's gotten me here. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. I love that.
0: So maybe be confident enough in yourself to know that you can handle whatever it is and go for it and you'll figure it out along the way. Yeah. Uh, That's really good advice. I love that. Well, Samuel, thanks for coming on, man. This has been a long time coming and we really appreciate you kind of digging deep into all of this stuff that, that a lot of us haven't really started to invest in or or learn about. So appreciate your time. And thanks everybody for listening. And we'll see you back next week.
2: Thanks for having me.